Studying mind wandering is a little bit challenging because it's entirely a internal phenomenon. Nature, in particular, seems to be conducive to uh, to creativity and to uh, relaxation. Group who is working uh, alone uh, comes up with more uh, creative solutions. Welcome to the Common Creative Podcast. My name's Paul Fairweather. And I'm Chris Meredith. And Chris and I are on a mission to open up the conversation about creativity in business through the lens of ideas, stories, and visual cognition. And this week's guest is Jonathan Spooler, who is a distinguished professor of psychological and brain scientists at the University of California, Santa Barbara. And Chris, wow. What a discussion. <laughs> a deep look into the world of the human brain and creativity um, and breakthroughs in the understanding of mindfulness and its relationship to mind wandering, how you can harness both of those aspects of what the brain does to boost creativity. Uh, it all sounds a bit kind of academic until you learn that things like being in nature, uh, taking a walk, uh, do generate new ideas, but not different kinds of new ideas than, say, whether you're with a group of people. Um, so a really fascinating exploration of creativity in the human brain. Yeah, refreshing. Chris, uh, you know, as always, I feel like a broken record, <laughs> you know, learning new things, new perspectives. But what I loved about this interview with Jonathan is that, and I'm glad it's towards the end of our mini-season on neurocreativity, is his ability to be able to weave a lot of these things together and say, well, it's not just about this, it's not just about mind-wandering or daydreaming, it's also about mindfulness, and, and those things go together in the new research and what we have to study further, which I just think, you know, for certainly for my curious brain, and I'm assuming yours as well, yes. that's just like more and more, and we did have to apologise after the end of the episode that we cut it to 45 minutes. We normally keep them to 30 minutes for our listeners, but we literally could have gone for hours. It could have been a Huberman experience. <laughs> Let's get him in. Let's get in, Jonathan. Jonathan Schooler, welcome to the Common Creative Podcast. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Jonathan, huge pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, this, this show is part of our season on neuroscience and Paul and I are learning so much about creativity and the way the human brain solves problems, the way you can train your brain to do different things. Um, let's get into that shortly, but I think first, if you don't mind, tell us a bit about your story. What led you to your role at University of California, Santa Barbara, and what led you to your interest in neuroscience and some extraordinary concepts like mind-wandering that we discussed with Moshe Bar and so on. Tell us a bit about yourself. Well, um, I've been interested in mind-wandering uh, since I was uh, a small kid. Uh, my first grade report card began, when I think of Jonathan, I imagine him at the end of the line, shoes untied, five feet behind everybody else, totally preoccupied, and yet entirely content. <laughs> uh, so I've been a, a mind wanderer my uh, entire life. Uh, and uh, it took a while to finally get to the point where I was able to translate that into uh, a line of research because studying mind wandering is a little bit challenging because it's entirely a internal phenomena, right? There's, you, it's, you can sometimes sort of tell 
that someone's mind wandering, but it's it's a very private experience. But uh, we found, and we, I look forward to talking more about this, that we could combine uh, self-report measures uh, in a, in certain specified ways with other more objective behavioral metri- measures and physiological physiological measures, and with that, really triangulate on the phenomena and get uh, some deep insights into it. And and I have to say that I've been quite gratified that over the last, uh, uh, my colleague Jonathan Smallwood and I wrote a, a review paper back in uh, 2006, I guess it was, and, and since then the field has really been uh, burgeoning, and uh, it's, it's just been great to see that we really have a real science of mind wandering. And to, to my understanding, mind wandering is kind of when you zone out, and we're kind of all familiar with it as a thing that happens sort of naturally to us. And I think you and, and perhaps Moshe Bar um, have identified that it's, it's, a, it's an important part of what the brain does, particularly when it wants to be creative. And the learning from him, and I'm, to help me out if I've got it wrong, is that mind wandering is both negative and positive, that there's a downside to it if you ruminate too much and you kind of dwell on negative things. But equally, it's an important way the brain processes challenges and potentially solves them as well. Is, is that a fair summary of what mind wandering is? Yeah, well, so um, let me start with my favorite example of uh, mind-wandering that I suspect many, if not all, of your listeners will be familiar with. And that's the situation where you're reading something that you're you know, really dedicated to paying attention to, and at some point you realize that your eyes have been moving across the page and your mind has been just completely elsewhere. And, 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 and you're, you're oftentimes quite startled uh, by the fact that uh, you've been that you, you can't even remember where you were last paying attention. Uh, and I think that really captures some of the, the fundamentals of, of mind-wandering, where the, the, the mind can just sort of take off on its own, and, and we can not even notice that it, that it left the premises. <laughs> and I, you can train yourself to kind of harness the power of mind, because it feels like something that I personally identify with what you just described very closely, and it annoys me because I'm trying to read what I'm trying to read, and suddenly I'm off thinking about something else. But you can harness the power of it. Is, is that right? And if so, how? Yeah, well, so uh, it, it's important to recognize that uh, mind-wandering is more disadvantageous in some situations than in others, and that there's different kinds of mind-wandering. So you don't want your surgeon mind-wandering, right? Or your um, <laughs> pilot yes. mind-wandering. There, there, there are some times where you really, really need to be attentive to the situation uh, at hand. But there are other situations. Uh, you're taking a walk in the park, or classically a shower. It doesn't really require all of your attention to soak yourself up. And in those situations uh, is, is a more opportune time for mind-wandering. And then it's also important to note that different kinds of mind-wandering seem to have very different consequences. And there was uh, a very famous paper that I feel was, uh, it was it was right in spirit, but it was, I think, a wrong in title, uh, even though I'm, I'm very good friends with uh, the, the second author, Dan Gilbert. The, the title of the paper was called A Wandering Mind is an Unhappy Mind. And uh, essentially what they found is they had people uh, carrying their smartphones around and pinging them periodically and asking them just now, were you paying attention to what you were doing or was your mind off in the clouds? They, they use more technical <laughs> terms than that. And, um, and and what they found, and then they asked them how what their happiness level was. 
And what they found was that when people reported mind wandering, they were significantly less happy than when they were on task. So that it does seem to be a a, a problem that, that when people are mind wandering, they, they tend to be less happy. But we did a follow-up study where we asked people some more details about the quality and content of their mind wandering. And in particular, we asked them how interesting was what you were thinking about. And what we found was that although it was the case, we replicated uh, these researchers that on average, when people were mind wandering, they were less happy than when they were on task. If they were mind wandering about something they were especially interested in, they were actually happier uh, than when they were uh, on task. And so it seems that uh, there's a particular kind of mind wandering, uh, curious, playful, interesting mind wandering, something that I like to call mind wondering, uh -huh. that seems to be um, uh, particularly, uh, have, have very different properties. It seems to be uh, uh, particularly uh, conducive to uh, positive experiences. If, if you're in a boring situation, if you can find a good topic to mind wonder about, it's likely to elevate your, your mood. And uh, we have some preliminary evidence that um, it's also associated with creativity, that this curious kind of mind wandering may be the, the particular type that is um, that leads to creative solutions and insights. So is there a way... Oh, <laughs> um, Jonathan, uh, that's really interesting because after our conversation with Moshe Bar, I suggested to him that um, mind wandering as well, but also the rumination could be mind woundering. Um, oh, whoa. <laughs> oh, we got mind wondering and mind woundering. Oh, I like that. Now you know oh. Paul's one of the common creators. <laughs> yeah, that's beautiful. So, so Paul, you have to um, confess, were you, was your mind wandering when you came up with that idea? <laughs> <laughs> well, well, that's, I suppose, the base of the question. And, and, and Jonathan, um, you started to, I suppose, answer or go where I was actually going with that conversation was about that link between mind wondering and creativity. And I suppose two parts to it, and, and like, I know you said earlier when we were just chatting that, you know, you study brains, you don't fix them. Um, but so how do you study that? And, and how, how can you, you know, what have you learned for people to apply that? You know, that, that because we know from people that we've spoken to that if you're in a positive mindset, you're more likely to be more creativity, more creative. So I'm just really interested if you can, you know, such a complex thing to define, but, you know, some insight into how sure. you might apply that. Yeah. Well, let me first uh, begin with a, another study that we did. We looked at uh, creative writers and physicists, and we asked them every day at the end of the day whether they had any creative ideas that day. And if so, we asked them to indicate the context of the situation surrounding w when they had the idea. And we also asked them to indicate to what degree it was associated with an aha experience and to what degree it involved overcoming an impasse. And what we found was that uh, about 20% of the ideas that these creative individuals had happened not when they were at work, not even when they were actively trying to pursue the problem. They just sort of spontaneously arose. And these were the the spontaneous mind-wandering ideas that we were looking for. So I, these ideas, the ones that happened sort of just wandered into their minds, 
these ideas were as creative as the ideas that they had when they were actively at work, which I think is, is quite remarkable. You know, how many things can you do as well uh, when you're not even trying to do it <laughs> as when you're actively uh, pursuing it? Uh, but we also found that these ideas that sort of wandered into their minds were distinctive in several ways. First off, they were more likely to be associated with that eureka, aha experience. And secondly, they were more likely to involve overcoming impasses. And so it seems that mind-wandering may be particularly well-suited for a particular kind of creative idea, the creative idea where you think you need to sleep on it mm -hmm. or mind-wander on it, mm -hmm. right? When you, when you reach an impasse, that's a good time to sort of uh, park the idea for why park thinking about it and just sort of let it incubate, incubate, let it percolate and see where mind wandering takes it. We did another study where we gave people uh, common uh, objects to think about common objects such as a brick or a hanger and then we asked them to generate as uh, many uses for it as they could think of uh, and then after a period of time, we stopped them, and then we gave them one of a variety of different uh, things to do. We either had them uh, generate, uh, just directly generate more, or we gave them what's known as an incubation interval, where we um, filled it in different ways. In one case, we filled it with nothing at all. They just had to sit there. In another case, we filled it with a demanding tasks where they really had to think hard. And in a third case, we had them uh, engage in a non-demanding task. And then we, in all cases, had them try to come up with additional items. And what we found is that when people came up with, uh, excuse me, when people were given the non-demanding task, that that seemed to be the situation in which they were most likely to get the biggest bang for their buck from the incubation interval. So it seems that non-demanding, doing a little something, but not too much, may be a, a particularly conducive to having creative ideas. Um, and so uh, taking a shower, gardening, maybe even those chores, those are the kinds of things that um, are not too demanding, but sufficiently demanding to sort of allow the mind to, to generate and percolate. That's fascinating. And... and as, as, as we mentioned, Paul and I have a particular focus on the world of work. And one of the things I observe about, it, it's not so true anymore, but, but people going to offices and the idea is that in, in, a, in a work environment, in an office environment, people should be kind of fueled up on adrenaline. They should be pumping out the answers and they should be um, almost combating whatever it is that they're trying to solve for. And what, what I'm learning from you then is, a difficult task you might say hey let's all go for a walk around the block let's um, and that could be an important part of performing your job to solve a complex problem exactly and actually it's interesting that you mentioned park because there is also some evidence that um, that nature in particular uh, seems to be conducive to uh, to creativity and to uh, relaxation and uh, and various other things they don't fully understand why uh, but um, but nature seems to be good. And it's interesting, you also mentioned walking because it turns out that walking uh, can be very helpful for creativity. There was a, this is actually a, 
a bit of a challenging story to tell because we were in the middle of doing a study uh, looking at the impact of walking on creativity. And we have we have a lovely lagoon here in Santa Barbara, and we were having we're giving participants these uh, pro- creative problems and having them walk around the lagoon uh, versus not, and seeing how they did. And in the middle of doing this uh, study, a beautiful study came out demonstrating exactly. Uh, what uh, what we were doing, but with a just a brilliant um, control condition, they had people in a wheelchair being pushed around the very same area as the people who were walking. And sure enough, the walkers were more creative than the people who were sitting, but getting the exact same stimulation. So yes, taking a walk, good nature, even better. I'll, I'll get a hypothesis. I tell you something. I'm a swimmer. Um, I swim in the ocean pretty much every day. I suspect it's similar as well because when you're swimming, it's kind of a rhythmic movement of your body. You, you can't really focus on anything and you zone out. No idea where your brain goes. But my guessing is walking and swimming um, would, would apply like that. Paul, I know you're trying to jump in with the question. Um, uh, Jonathan, I, I was just interesting, and, it, and it's interesting how all these conversations um, uh, that we've had over the last you know, couple of months all linked together. Now, one of the things we spoke with Moshe about was about how, because he's you know, looking at how to apply his research you know, into the work situation. And we had this conversation saying, well, you know, you can't force people to daydream. Um, but I've been thinking about it since, because I was speaking to a friend uh, about meditation, and she just said to me, she said, oh, my meditation is I just daydream. So I, I wonder whether, you know, the way to get people to um, mind wander is to actually tell them to meditate because the brain always does opposite. And I know that whenever I try to meditate, I end up mind wandering. <laughs> so, um, you know, is that the way to do it is to say to people, we're going we're gonna to meditate now. And then, and then instead of saying, come back, bring your mind back, just say, let the mind go. Um, yeah, these, these, this is a, is a great question. And, and I think that it, this is a very exciting time because we're really just sort of at the, at the beginning of fully understanding the ways that we can prime the productive kinds of mind wandering. But with respect to, um, to meditation, there, there was actually a study that looked at the impact of meditation on two different, it's a little bit complicated study, but I'll unpack it for you. They looked at two different kinds of uh, creativity measures. One is known as the remote associates, where you give people three words and they have to come up with a fourth. So it's, a, it's one where there's a single answer. Uh, and then they had another one, which is this unusual uses, um, one that I think I mentioned a moment ago, where you give people a common object like a brick or a hanger and then ask them to come up with creative solutions. And then they gave them two different kinds of meditation uh, these are really two of the classic kinds of meditation. Uh, they gave them what's known as breath focus. We have to just really, uh, every time you notice your mind wandering, you come back and you focus on the breath. And then they gave them open monitoring, where you just are trying to be grounded in the present and taking a observer perspective. So rather than identifying with the chatterer in your mind you just identify with the listener and you just watch oh it's chatting about that and just watch the mind sort of chatter away without trying to uh, do anything but just uh, stay grounded in the present and then um, they looked at the impact of those two different kinds of meditation on people's uh, performance on these two measures and what they found 
was that the open monitoring meditation, not the one where they were focusing on the breath, but where they were just watching their mind wander, essentially, that that was associated with superior performance on the unusual uses, on the open, on the creative problem with open uh, alternatives. And so it does seem like meditation can be helpful, uh, although um, not every kind of meditation. So that's one point. Now I have another study, which is again a little bit complicated, but we basically you can you can just look at the frequency with which people uh, report mind wandering. There's some mindfulness scales, and we looked at the relationship between people's self-reported mindfulness and their performance on that other measure, on the remote associates measure that I just mentioned before. And first off, the first thing that we found that was a little bit surprising was that the more mindful people were, the uh, the less good they were on these uh, remote associates. So here's a situation where the mind wanderers were actually doing better than the, the mindful folks. But it turned out that this was a particularly circumscribed result. So there are two different ways that you can solve remote associates. You can look at the three words and then, you know, what's the associate of this word? What's the associate of this word? What's the associate of this word? And then try to figure out what's the common one through all of them. So it's this analytic approach. Or you just stare at the words and then boom, the solution just pops to mind in an insightful way. And what we found is that the reason why the mind wanderers were uh, more successful is because they tended to solve these problems in an insightful way. And insightful solutions tends to be, tend to be better with this than the more analytic ones. But when it came to analytic, what solving it analytically, the highly mindful people actually did it better. So it seems that there's sort of different ways to um, skin a cat, to use an unfortunate metaphor, <laughs> yes. and, uh, and that mindfulness anyway. sort of uh, facilitates one way and mind-wandering seems to facilitate a different way. Uh, Jonathan, I, I, I have a question. I don't know if you know of this, uh, this test, that um, DAT creativity, which is Yes, a, absolutely, yes, we've used it. Yeah, so I, I'm interested, I'm really interested in that because... You know, I've done all of those things about those associations or, you know, different uses for a brick. Um, and I always thought that I was a quite a divergent thinker. But I think those sort of exercises have some sort of linkage. You know, you think of a wall and then you, you know, think of a, a paperweight. I don't know what it, why it is. But when I first did that exercise or the test, I was astounded at how low my mark was uh, because I realised, you know, I wasn't. So I'm just really interested in that idea that you've been talking about there and this thing about divergent thinking, because it seems to be getting things that instead of being the same, but so different from one another. So does it link in somewhere? Yeah, I, I think that um, it, it's, it's very interesting to think about the, the spread of our associations and that there are some people who have more of a sort of, you can think about attention as being like a spotlight and some of us have a, a more a narrow spotlight and others a more broad spotlight. And they both have value, right? The narrow spotlight, you know, allows you to have a great deal of precision. But the broad spotlight allows you to have uh, these, these far associations. And the DAT seems to, where you're basically looking at the the degree of, of, of disparity between one word and the next and the next really, I think, sort of captures this uh, broad spotlight of, of attention and uh, 
and, and sort of highlights how that can be a, a key element to a creativity. But I, I also think that really the trick is uh, to learn to manage to control your spotlight of attention, to learn how to go really mm-hmm. broad and go fishing and finding sort of you know wild ideas and, and distant associations, but then to go more focused and to carefully evaluate of those ideas. And it seems like different parts of the brain may be associated with those uh, different processes. The a default mode network is good for sort of the meanderings, exploring different possibilities in the space. And then the executive network is, is important for uh, critically uh, analyzing uh, these ideas. And it's also likely that, um, you know, uh, different uh, substances may, you know, have uh, different consequences. So, for example, uh, cannabis is is going to uh, uh, facilitate the uh, default mode network and wander and come up with, you know, wild ideas, but not so good for the executive network, uh, which is, uh, you know, so that people are going to have these, you know, what they think are great creative ideas when they're high, but when they revisit it in you know sobriety, they they it doesn't quite uh, stand up so well. Uh, whereas other things, I, I don't mean to be um, pushing nicotine, but there does seem to be some evidence actually that nicotine uh, facilitates the uh, executive network, and so people may well be uh, uh, more. Yeah. More focused. Oh, alcohol also seems to uh, facilitate that general spread. I think again, not trying to promote uh, that <laughs> substance either, but it, it <laughs> does help us triangulate on the phenomena. A Sunday morning last night, I solved all the world's problems. I just can't remember what it was. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Jonathan, I just wanted to make a bit of a, a leap, um, and back to some of the things you said earlier, but also uh, back to an area that you study. Um, and I, I posed a question, it's, excuse my naivety in it, but I, I was reading somewhere that sometimes you're known for your views on the controversial area of analogous cognition. Um, and I just wondered, you know, if you've ever played Pictionary, when you get into it, sometimes you can draw a line and your partner goes, you know, spaceship. <laughs> you know, are you cheating? You know, like, you know, and it's just this whole thing. Because we've also we've also interviewed Yuri Hassan, and he mm. talks about you know the implanting a story in someone's mind and basically neuro neuro coupling. Mm-hmm. So my question is: Is this anomalous um, cognition? Is it sort of similar to neuro coupling? Is that sort of what what it's about? And, and how does it play in creativity in groups when you're trying to come up with ideas and bouncing off each other? Okay, so. Uh uh, you've you've gotten me on a sensitive topic here, but uh, but that's fine. Uh, so anomalous cognition is what we call in my lab the woo-woo stuff. So it's things like precognition, telepathy, clairvoyance, and and telekinesis. And uh, most of my serious-minded colleagues, you know, would not be caught uh, talking about these uh, phenomena. Yeah, whereas there's, there certainly is a, a field of researchers who, who study it. I have to tell you my uh, perspective on this, and I've actually been studying the phenomena for now for like 15 years, and I am, uh, I'm still uh, rather agnostic uh, on it. Uh, on the one hand, there have been lots of studies that uh, are suggestive of these kinds of effects. On the other hand, um, there have been lots of failures to replicate 
and there are some the genuine concerns in, in psychological research right now that, that researchers can find phenomena and uh, continue to find them where there isn't necessarily any there there because they, you know, they analyze it one way in one time and they analyze it another way in another time. So my uh, motto in this domain is uh, entertaining without endorsing. I think that um, we should, on the one hand, uh, not dismiss this evidence out of hand, but on the other hand, I'm not prepared to uh, necessarily take it at uh, face face value. But what, what if um, we call it what if we call it mind woo wooing? <laughs> there we go. <laughs> You're on a roll. Uh, but but. I do think, as you mentioned about uh, creativity in groups, and I think there really is a very important point to be uh, to be made here, and, and, and a major uh, misconception. There is this uh, view that um, brainstorming, uh, where you have you know a, a group of people all working together, just sort of spitballing ideas, uh, and that this is a um, you know sort of one of the best ways uh, to be uh, to be creative. And there certainly may be situations where uh, this kind of brainstorming can be effective. But there have been some, a number of very careful studies where they give people a creative problem, and in one situation they have everybody work on it alone and then look at the creative ideas that come up. And in the other case, they have them work on it together in this sort of brainstorming situation. And then they, you know, which group um, does more? Now, not surprisingly, a group of people brainstorming is going to do better than a single individual working alone. But if you take the same number of people who are working in the group and have them all work alone and then compare that, what you typically find is that the group who is working uh, alone uh, comes up with more uh, creative solutions. And, and there are a number mm -hmm. of possible um, explanations for this. One is, and we all know this, you know, the, the loudest person in the group is not necessarily the most creative, right? So you've got in these brainstorming things, you've got these sort of, you know, a, a gregarious, extroverted folks who are dominating the thing. And you may have these very creative, introverted folks who just aren't getting their, uh, their ideas out. And then in addition, what, once you put an idea out, and there's a lot of research in this in creativity, we are so susceptible to mental set. So um, there was one study which asked people to design a spillless cup, and in one case they showed them an example of a spillless cup, and in the other case they just let them do it on their own. And the people who saw the example, all their versions kind of looked like the one that of the example that they'd seen. So when you have these brainstorming uh, situations, one the, the the first idea or the second idea that gets put out there sort of introduces a mental set, and that then sort of locks people in. Now. What I think uh, may be, and, and really more research needs to be done on this too, so I'm now sort of going into speculation mode, but my best guess is that what you want to do is start with um, individuals working alone to get them all sort of coming up with their own separate ideas and allowing the introverts to come up with ideas that are just as visible as the extroverts. And then after you've got the, you've kind of covered the full uh, a base, then bring all those ideas in and start brainstorming in a group about that. And then the other important caveat on this point is that one situation where groups really do uh, work better in, in the team setting is when each member of the group has unique 
expertise. Uh, so the, 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 the problems of brainstorming typically show up when you take like a group of participants who all have sort of similar background and they're all coming at it from the sort of a potentially similar kind of perspective. But if you've got one person who's, you know, uh, has this area of specialty and another person with that area of specialty, then in that case, uh, really, the communication is going to be particularly valuable. That's fascinating. I'm a person that runs lots of creative sessions with my clients in business. Um, and I completely sort of identify with what you described, that people, the solutions might either be predictable or they might uh, be dominated by a certain group. There's a sort of side effect, which is that it, it can be very powerful for a group to work together on a problem because they all feel they help to solve it. So it's got a human side, but maybe the quality of the ideas it, it isn't going to come out of a group unless you've let people come up with ideas individually. I think that's, that's really interesting. Uh, I want to change the subject a little bit to an aspect of creativity which I think may be linked to mind-wandering or mindfulness, which is this, this idea of creative flow. That, that lots of people talk about just kind of tuning into a challenge or an issue. They lose track of time and they feel like they're delivering at their optimum creative output. Um, is it linked to mind wandering? And if so, how do you transfer from mind wandering to creative flow? It, what do you think? Yeah, that's a great question. And it's interesting, creative flow actually has qualities that are both like mind-wandering and other qualities that are like uh, mindfulness. So let's sort of unpack that a little bit. First off, you, you, were, you were quite uh, accurate there. Creative flow is a situation where a person, uh, their capacity is exactly being pushed to the level of um, the, the demands of the situation. So that all of their resources are being put into uh, working on a particular problem. So they are very, very deeply absorbed, so absorbed that they lack what I call meta-awareness or, you know, the self-reflective awareness that they're even in creative flow. And in fact, one sort of surefire way to knock yourself out of creative flow is to go, oh, this is wonderful. I'm in creative flow. Right? <laughs> Boom. Okay. It's gone, right? So uh, the... Creative flow is very much like mind wandering in the sense that in the same way that you fail to notice that your mind is wandering, you can continue reading along without realizing that you are. In creative flow, you, you fail to even notice that you are in, in creative flow. And it's also like mind wandering in the sense that you can be uh, deeply absorbed. You know, you can drive two exits past where you meant to get off in mind wandering because you're just so uh, absorbed. But it's like mindfulness in the sense that you are very much in the present. You are, your attention is very much uh, engaged in the activity that you are doing. And uh, it's like uh, mindfulness in that the executive network is involved. This is a situation where you are really using that working memory capacity. You are using all of the, uh, the, the thinking machinery, the hard, the machinery that kind of hurts to use uh, <laughs> is all being brought to bear uh, on the task. So, so flow is a really fascinating uh, hybrid phenomena. And it's another one of these areas where the concept is, um, has been better fleshed out than the research has. And mm -hmm. we really need 
more mm-hmm. research on on creative flow. How can we how can we foster creative flow? How can we sort of know when people are in creative flow without knocking them out of it? Uh, and uh, I think it's a very exciting direction. It, it reminds me of that that joke or question you can ask kids is when they're, they're put into bed and say, well, tell me when you fall asleep. It's kind of, you can't, it's sort of a self-defeating type of thing. Uh, and you answered exactly. the next question I had, which uh, was, well, I'm looking for is the switch, you know, how can you switch on creative flow? And you're going, well, we don't yet know. Um, I mean, what I think is, what I think is a, is a key point, and this is a, a topic that um, we're increasingly uh, getting uh, interested in, uh, curious about actually is is curiosity, and I think that when your curiosity is 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 deeply engaged, that that uh, it encourages the mind to want to naturally apply itself. It it really cares. It really it's 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 spontaneously being drawn to um, uh, to that problem. Uh, I imagine that uh, Einstein. You know, when he was working on his problems, he wasn't like, "Oh, geez, I better get back to work and work on this some more." You know, no, he was he was obsessed, right? He he was so curious that it just naturally encouraged him to enter into the flow state. And and I suspect, although as I said, we really need more research on this, that 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 finding your passion, finding the topic where you really are genuinely curious will naturally uh, invoke flow. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm just interested to know whether, you know, you, you think that's right or you think it's just better to stay in the in the flow zone and, and, and increase up or do sometimes you have to step out of that and get uncomfortable? Well, I think that a, a key element of uh, creativity is the shifting of, of perspectives, the shifting of contexts, um, and that you don't want to stay in any particular state uh, too much. That that really it's it's the variety that is is so important to um, to creativity. And and furthermore, um, that even the creative process itself involves, as I was mentioning before, you you need to uh, uh, be in sort of that just generative phase, and then you need to be in the hardcore. Uh, evaluation phase and so uh, I think that uh, pushing your pushing your comfort zone uh, is is very much likely to be uh, helpful uh, on on some occasions because it's gonna it's gonna force you to sort of tackle things from a uh, from a different perspective it may it may encourage you to uh, realize that you're an impasse and take a walk and to uh, you know come up with a whole a whole different uh, approach, but at the same time, I would say that um, if one finds themselves sort of excessively in that that space, as with any other, so if you're if you're just knocking your head up against the wall again and again and again, you know maybe it's time to move to another part of the problem where you might be able to make a little bit mm. of progress. I, I think that answer probably answers my other question, which was really about you know the role of curiosity in that, and I think you've described that that. That that seeking variety is is part of that that, that curious um, uh, endeavor. Jonathan, can let I, me tell you. Oh, let me. On. Can I just follow up on the curiosity thing? One, one more thing. We've been investigating curiosity and actually finding that there are uh, two different aspects to curiosity. 
Um, and and what I think they're both useful, and we're, we're still trying to sort of sort out their their relative merits. But um, so one kind of curiosity is what's known as general interest curiosity, and this is just kind of a delight in learning uh, new information. We find that this general interest curiosity is um, is routinely correlated with uh, creativity and also all sorts of other positive things, such as learning, because people want to learn new information. Intellectual humility, because they recognize all the things uh, that they don't know and they, they, they still uh, can know. But there's another kind of curiosity known as deprivation curiosity, and this is where people feel mm. uncomfortable not knowing something. And here we find it is sometimes correlated with creativity, but it can also be uh, correlated with some less desirable qualities, such as um, a, a lack of learning, because people think they knew things they didn't know because they don't like the thought that they didn't know something. And uh, it's associated with, uh, this is a disturbing one, with believing fake news. Because when people hear fake news, they don't like to think that they didn't, oh yes, I knew that. You know, They, they want to believe they knew it because they don't like this feeling of, uh, of, of not knowing. And so I also think that in, um, in, in cultivating curiosity, it's particularly important to cultivate this uh, general interest curiosity. It's just sort of uh, learning to delight in understanding things and, and, and learning to be comfortable with all that we don't know. Mm-hmm. That's, that sounds like a wonderful challenge to be comfortable with what we don't know and to delight in learning new things. So have you managed to apply that a lot of, in your, your personal life? Have you done anything to kind of embrace any of these learnings? Uh, you know, like, are you a regular walker? Do you, um, I, I don't know, take longer showers than anybody else? Well, anything you've adopted personally? Well, I, I mean, I've been... Um, in some ways, you know, they say that research is me-search. Uh, and so, you know... <laughs> <laughs> Much of this has been an attempt just to justify uh, my lifestyle uh, all along. So I've been a, a mind wanderer, you know, as I said, yes. since uh, since uh, first grade, you know, surely, surely before. Um, but uh, there, I have been, uh, my fiancé and I actually have been sort of working on this idea uh, together of bridging two different aspects uh, and sort of combining the best of both worlds uh, and, and, and working to cultivate these aspects of our uh, respective personalities. Her, her name, by the way, is Amanda Gregory, just to give her full credit. Um, and, and the idea is that um, there's uh, one thing which is known uh, as the personality trait of openness to experience. And openness to experience involves, it's one of what's known as the big five, so it's, it's one of the sort of major ways in which people differ. And openness to experience is, involves curiosity, that's really one of its key things, uh, a delight in doing new things. It also involves uh, uh, an appreciation of, uh, of the arts, uh, of music. Um, and, but the main thing is just liking to try and explore and experiment with new things. And we also find one of the key aspects of it is associated with mind wandering and daydreaming. Uh, but it does have some downsides and you know we all know people who are very high in openness to experience and well they're daydreamers so they're distracted. <laughs> they're you know off here, off there, it's hard to you know their their minds are always wandering and it also can be associated with recklessness. They you know trying new experiences maybe not without without thinking through fully uh, the, the consequences. Yeah, you find them in the trying. casualty departments of hospitals. <laughs> exactly, yeah. So the other trait that we think is important to cultivate simultaneously 
is mindfulness, is, you know, learning to be grounded in the present, learning to be discerning and, and figure out that, you know, well, if you're going to ride that motorcycle, put on the, the helmet uh, and to uh, learn how to con- control when to mind wander and when not to mind wander. And so, uh, and then I should also say that, you know, let's face it, there are, you know, even mindfulness can be a little heavy handed sometimes, <laughs> you know, it can be a little dogmatic, constantly watching your mind at every single uh, moment. Yeah. So, Right, so openness to experience also sort of adds a little bit of levity and playfulness and lightens up uh, the okay. mindfulness. So, so the, the combination of the two seems to be, we think, a, a really potent formula, and we're calling it open mindfulness, sort of like mindfulness uh, 2.0. And and we think, and this has been, uh, we've both been working on this uh, and pr- developing uh, courses on this to help people simultaneously cultivate openness to experience and mindfulness. And with that. Hopefully, people will uh, be daydreamers, but they'll recognize when they're daydreaming and daydreaming at the right times and not the wrong times. And they'll recognize when they're engaging in perseverative, ruminative, unproductive daydreaming and cut that off. And then they'll switch to the pleasant, more interesting, mind-wandering topics. So that's what I've been trying to integrate into my own life. I love the fact that you're kind of developing it jointly with the second person. It sounds like you've got two things to try and bring together, and two people working together on that. It seems like a very natural way of building it up. Thank you for sharing that. Jonathan, um, I'd love to keep on talking all (laughs) all day, um, but I just think that that thing that you've just said there probably brings it to a nice place to a close. One of my favourite quotes, which uh, a great friend of mine who had this magazine called Map Magazine, which was stood for Stra- uh, Motivated Australian People, used to use in front of his magazine by Sarah Barn Brethnarch, which is the world needs dreamers and the world needs doers, but above all, the world needs dreamers that do, um, <laughs> which, which I think sort of brings us to this close about, you know, it's not just all about, you know, daydreaming, it's also about, you know, maybe day-doing, day uh, possibly. Um, so, look, uh, thank you so much for your time. Uh, it has been absolutely fantastic. I said, I'm sure Chris and I could keep on yeah. popping questions <laughs> off you for hours. Um, but we're not like your mate, Hooberman. Uh, we don't go for three hours um, yeah. in our podcast episodes. Thank you so much, Jonathan. Um, it's been a huge pleasure to meet you for me. It's, it's been a real pleasure. I'm glad we finally were able to find the time to connect. <laughs> yeah. Thank you, Jonathan. Thank you. Take care. Wow, Chris, what an interview. And this is a world first because we got Jonathan before Joe Rogan. Uh, (laughs) Joe had invited Jonathan onto his podcast, and for some reason it hasn't happened. So, Joe, if you're listening, which I'm sure you are, we got there first, but do get him on your show. Uh, He is fantastic. I I was scribbling notes, powerful insights about creativity, and then I felt guilty about it. I was thinking maybe I should be mind-wandering whilst... Was talking. I'm going to have to re-listen to this episode many times, using different parts of my brain to listen in different ways. Uh, yeah, uh, oh, such an amazing conversation. I think we're going to get lots of feedback from our listeners. I, I'm, I'm hoping they're going to post comments and questions. Um, give us a rating. Uh, I think if you've ever given anyone a, a, a we'd love a rating. Um, and of course, tell your friends. I think we're on again amazing places on the science of creativity, the neuroscience of creativity. So please tell your friends. Yeah, it's a shame there's not a six-star rating um, <laughs> on, on here. Um, actually, someone was telling me last night about a restaurant, and uh, 
he, he said that you know, he advertised as a five-star Michelin. And he had to ring the guy and say, mate, you look like an idiot because there's actually only three. That's the most. Um, so we'll, we'll, we'll settle for five-star review for Jonathan. Look, look, if you can do that, uh, as Chris said, it would really help us a lot. and We really appreciate it. So uh, we'll be here uh, again next week with uh, Roger Beattie, who is uh, another star in this world of uh, neuroscience and creativity. So uh, please join us again next week. See you all soon.